Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. When I say California wine country, what comes to mind? I think of rolling hills and lovely vineyards. It's very luxurious and fancy. It's not really the country, but it kind of feels like the country. Buses full of bachelorettes and and best men. Tasting really good wine that I wouldn't have been able to buy in the grocery store. It's a good vacation place for a long weekend. Traveling through the countryside, stopping off and sipping wine. Kind of expensive. Basically a trip to southern France in my own backyard. But of course, the wine country in the North Bay wasn't always what it's become today. Cue this week's question asker. My name is Michael Vry, and I currently live in Mountain View, California. And this week's question is, how did wine country get its start and how did it become so popular? To answer Michael's question, we're blitzing through 160 years of wine country history in about 10 minutes. Hold on tight. I'm Olivia Allen Price, and this is Bay Curious. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. To answer Michael's question about when wine country got its start and how it became so popular, we brought in reporter Christopher Beal. Hey, Christopher. Hey, Olivia. So let's start with when wine grapes were first planted in the North Bay. When was that? All the way back in 1823. The Spanish created a mission in Sonoma, and it's the first place where grapes were intentionally planted in wine country. But the wine made from these grapes was sacramental, kind of like alcoholic grape juice used in church, not what we would recognize as wine. And then in the 1830s, some of the early European settlers in the Napa and Sonoma Valleys would have grown some basic wine grapes as well. Now, when does the wine country that we think of today start to take shape? For the sake of this story, let's start in 1840. California is 10 years from entering the Union, and this guy named Charles Krug arrives in San Francisco. Krug was a German after the revolutions of 1848. 
in Europe. He comes into San Francisco. He was the editor of a German language newspaper in San Francisco. That's Jim Lapsley. He managed agricultural continuing education at UC Davis for more than 30 years with a focus on winemaking. Now, after a few years in San Francisco, Charles Krug gets married. And ended up as a dowry getting quite a bit of land. This is the area just north of St. Helena where the Charles Krug Winery is located, considered to be the first commercial winery in Napa Valley. The wine country story is really one about marketing and innovation. And this guy, Charles Krug, gets credit for a lot of the early innovation in wine country, including being the first to use a cider press, which is kind of like a slotted barrel to press wine grapes. Before that, grapes were generally crushed by people's feet. When California entered the Union, it was a place where we could grow grapes because the climate was quite similar to the uh, southern Mediterranean. It was dry during the summer. It had wet winters. And Vitis vinifera grew very well here in California. Vitis vinifera is a species of grapevine that's used to make wine. After the early success of pioneers like Charles Krug, people began to plant grapes and produce more wine in the Napa and Sonoma Valleys. But this was still considered low-quality table wine, and it continued to represent only a fraction of the U.S. market, mainly because it was still cheaper for East Coast consumers to import wine from Europe by boat than from California by train. But that all changed in 1875. The U.S. government stepped in and increased the tax on imported European wines to 20 cents a gallon, which leveled the financial playing field for California's wine producers. And as a result, the wines that did get imported from Europe tended to be much more expensive wines. And bulk wine that was for everyday drinking that became then from California. Now, it wasn't a linear march from this moment to today. The wine industry suffered a few major setbacks over the years, but one way or another managed to survive them. Here's a few of the important ones. First, wine country was almost destroyed by bugs in the 1870s. This is a microscopic bug that eats the roots of wine grapes. It's related to an aphid, and it's called phylloxera. And when it arrived in wine country... It destroyed the vineyards, it killed the vineyards, and the only way you could really come up with a solution was to plant on grafted vines. The bottom of the rootstock would be a native variety, and then on the top we would graft with vitis vinifera. Thanks to those new phylloxera-resistant grafted roots, wine country would survive, but not without collateral damage. A lot of grape growers decided to get out of the business altogether and plant other crops. The next hit to wine country would come in 1920, and that's when the 18th Amendment passed. You would know it as prohibition. What prohibition did was it prohibited the commercial production, sale, and transport of alcoholic beverages of all types. But the law left a huge loophole open. The home production of non-intoxicating, which I am putting in air quotes, wine. The grape industry in California switched from producing wine grapes to be sold to wineries, and they switched to grapes that could be shipped back east to home wine producers for home production. While there isn't an official government record, because drinking was illegal, arrest and medical data from the period suggests that alcohol consumption levels in the United States swiftly dropped off 
at the beginning of Prohibition, possibly due to an economic recession at the time. But by the end of 1921, Americans were drinking again at almost two-thirds the levels they had before Prohibition. Eventually, the government gave in. Prohibition was overturned, and alcohol of all types was again legal in the United States. Obviously, good news for wine country. This final setback was actually a blessing in disguise. And it happens as the U.S. comes out of prohibition. California wineries were producing bulk wine and were shipping it out of state to out of state bottlers. And so most of the wine that was produced in California was not bottled under a California label. But during World War II, the government took over various parts of American industry for the war effort. And part of that was the railroad cars wine houses used to send wine back east for bottling. And so in 43, the out-of-state bottlers kind of realized that if they're going to stay in business, they need to come to California and buy a winery in California. And they do hundreds of them. They then start bottling in California for the first time. The wine was bottled with the locale on the label. And this small change made California wine a bottled and branded commodity. And that brings me to Michael's next question about wine country. How did it become so popular? Well, first off, we have to thank the baby boomers. As they reach drinking age, we have 3 million new consumers coming into the market and 3 to 4 million every year for the next 20 years. These are the baby boomers. And for whatever reason, they tended to consume wine in a larger volume than did their parents. And the baby boomers generally liked white wine, possibly because of the arrival of innovations like stainless steel tanks and refrigeration. When those arrived in wine country, it changed everything about the flavor of white wine for the better. What we find is that when we ferment grapes, and especially white grapes at lower temperatures, the fruity characteristics of, that are inherent in the grapes are enhanced and maintained. Thanks in part to the boomers, we see a spike in the consumption of table wine starting in the mid to late 1960s. And the vast majority of that boom was in white wine. Branded, bottled, California white wine. While the baby boomers back in America were starting to notice the wine coming out of the North Bay, the French winemaking establishment didn't really take American wines very seriously at this point. That all began to change on May 24th, 1976, at the so-called Judgment of Paris. French wines went head-to-head -head with wines from the Napa Valley in a blind tasting like, imagine a long table with several judges seated behind it, each taking their turns tasting the different wines and taking notes. And these are French judges, by the way, wine experts of the highest pedigree. But when the scores were tallied, the most unbelievable thing happened. California won. The top choice in both the red and the white varieties were the California wines. The first place winners were a Stag's Leap Cabernet and a Chateau Montalena Chardonnay. Both of those wineries are still in operation in wine country today. The Judgment of Paris was a feature article that made the cover of Time magazine. Basically, it was a shot in the arm for the industry. It was validation. And we had even more people coming in and wanting to start wineries and, and, and or plant vineyards. And plant they did. Today, 
There are more than 400 physical wineries in Napa County alone, producing more than 1,000 different wine brands. And looking forward, climate change is already affecting the North Bay. Things are getting warmer, and grape growers and winemakers alike are beginning to adapt to an uncertain future. But people in the know say with absolute certainty that wine country and its spirit of innovation are here to stay. So I hope you're thirsty. That was reporter Christopher Beal. Big thanks to Michael Varai for submitting today's question at baycurious.org. And thanks also to our friends and family whose voices you heard at the top of this episode. Uh, Nick Ojay. Emily Schwartz. Larry Jerome. Jim Ratcliffe. Before you go, I have a quick favor to ask you. We want to learn more about how you listen to podcasts and what it is that you love about them so we can make ours even better here at KQED. If you have 10 minutes to spare, just 10 minutes, take our survey. You can find it at kqed.org slash podcast survey. We'll drop a link in our show notes too. Again, that's kqed.org slash podcast survey. Thanks so much. Bay Curious is made in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. I'm Olivia Allen Price. Thanks for listening. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.